For the last two years, I've had the privilege to tell the stories of Australians and their journey to Asia capability. These are unique stories, but also lived experiences shared by many Australians. I hope that these stories gave you a glimpse of the diverse fabric of what it means to be Australian, the dynamic region of Asia, and the many different opportunities that building Asia capability can bring. For our last episode, I am here with Peter Osborne, board director, advisor, surfer, and Buddhist. I met Peter in Shanghai when he was the managing director Asia for Blackmores. By the time Peter left Blackmores, the Asian market accounted for 50% of the company's profits. We talked about Blackmore's successes and failures in Asia, Peter's plateaued Chinese language skills, and how it's never too late to build an Asia career. Welcome to Clout Asia, where we ask guests to take us on their journey to Asia capability to help us understand what being an Aussie with clout is all about. I'm Lucy Du, and here is Peter. Hi, Peter. Welcome to Clout Asia. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks, Lucy, and great to be here, and Happy New Year of the Dragon. Xinyan Kuala. Xinyan Kuala. We are in the Year of the Dragon, and you are based in Taipei. How long have you been in Taiwan? This time, Lucy, about 15 years, and two times before that with postings with Austrade for like three years at a time. It's been a long time in Taiwan. Your journey in Asia has been incredibly extensive. How did it all start for you? This will show my age and my dotage, Lucy. I first went to China actually in 1984 as a tourist, and then I started working for the Australian Department of Trade, which then converted to Austrade in the late 80s. I did a sort of short-term posting to Taiwan in 1989, working in the Australian Chamber of Commerce office here in Taipei. And then basically started on a, on a, on a very long career with Austrade. I did six postings in a row with the Australian Trade Commission. Beijing was my last posting running the Austrade network in, in China. I want to wind it back to 1984. What prompted you to choose China as a destination for tourism? I think at the time it was just, it was a really... It was sort of a really interesting and exotic place to go in the mid-80s and people, you know, people were obviously going there. And I always had an interest in Asia just in general. I don't really know where I got that interest from because, I mean, I, I grew, actually grew up in the country in Australia and, and I did environmental science of all things at university, so it had nothing to do with, with Asia. But I went to China, yeah, just as a tourist for like two-week trip. Which cities did you visit? At the time, I went to Shanghai, Beijing and Xi'an. To see the obviously to see the terracotta warriors, yes, and that that sort of started, I guess, a bit of a fascination for me with with China and with Asia. But I was never what I'd call a Sinophile, Lucy. So I was never like I didn't study Chinese, and even when I worked in started working in the government and working on Taiwan, I didn't speak Mandarin. I just happened to drift into the a role the way the sort of bureaucracy worked. You could just apply for jobs, and I just applied for this job and got it. Then I just sort of started on a career that made me a start at least a Taiwan specialist and then moving on to being a, a, more, a very much a China and an Asia specialist in my career, but really totally by default. 
What an interesting way to get so actively involved with China and Asia. And you said you didn't study the language. Did you end up studying the language afterwards after spending some time? How is your Mandarin? My Mandarin's okay. Oh, this is going to sound just weird, but I don't read or write it. Um, I only speak it. And I never studied it formally, actually. My wife's Taiwanese, so I sort of learned it. I learned it from my wife at home. And my wife still said, my Taiwan is pretty bad, but it gets me by it. And one of the reasons I didn't, which, which is you know, interesting, is that early on in my career, when I was dealing with China and Taiwan, obviously there was lots of people in Australia and Department of Foreign Affairs who were fluent Chinese speakers. One of those guys who was a fluent Chinese speaker at the sort of inter- UN interpreter level, he just said to me, Peter, at your age, learning to read and write it is very, very difficult. And the time it will take you to learn and read and write it, you're far better to put that time into learning to speak it because your speaking will advance much more quickly than your reading and writing, which is so I just didn't, I just didn't really bother. I mean, I can read, probably read a couple hundred characters, but the problem then was really pretty interesting. The problem then is that when you're learning that way, you get to a certain level where then all the books and everything you're trying to study from, if you're trying to study it, even if you're trying to study it yourself, they're all in either Bob or Morpho or they're in characters. So anyway, that, that's my excuse for plateauing, <laughs> Lucy. But, and also I'm a very lazy student. I'm not a good student. That was my question about the plateauing because you do hear many instances of foreigners, both with and without Chinese heritage, only being able to speak, whether it's for ease or for family purposes. You know, kids grow up in households where they speak to grandparents and parents but never get formally educated. In the business setting, and you know, you've held a number of roles and very senior roles. Do you find that the level reaching to that plateau per se is sufficient? Or do you think if you could have it again, you would go from scratch from a much younger age to do the reading and writing and get to a slightly higher level? Probably what I would say, Lucy, in hindsight, is I would probably put more time into being more formally trained to speak it. I still don't think I would learn to read or write it. Only because once you get above a certain level in your career, you're not the one who's reading all the detailed documents. You've got staff to do that. It would, it would be great if you could do it, but you don't really need to. But speaking it at a very sophisticated level or a very high level would certainly be be advantageous. I mean, I'm perfectly comfortable sitting in a meeting room with some with a government official or a CEO in Beijing or Shanghai and having a pretty decent conversation about most things. But if we're talking about technical details or something or sort of more advanced level Chinese, I'm a bit out of my depth. For a sort of middle to upper management level role as a foreigner doing the sort of roles I was doing, I think my Chinese is probably perfectly adequate. But in hindsight, yeah, I probably would have spent more time to actually study it more formally to just to get me to a bit more advanced level. Makes sense. So you've done your government stint with Austrade and in 2009 you moved to yeah moved to moved to we'll just pause for the there's a few there's a few stores around here and it's you know that it's the first day after the sort of formal public holiday for Chinese years finished so everyone's lighting off the fireworks to scare away the spirits for the the shop reopenings no worries so yeah I finished with Austrade in 2009 and then Christine Holgate and Marcus Blackmore asked me if I'd come to join Blackmore's, obviously the large Australian natural healthcare company, to build their Asian business. And then I spent from 2009 until early 2020 with Blackmore's and built that Asian business to be a really substantial business, including 
entering China in 2012 and then the China success story for Blackmores I think is pretty well known. To give our listeners who may not be as familiar in terms of Blackmores and that reach in Asia and the success, give us a little bit of context in terms of where it was, how big that business was in 2009 and where it ended when you left. So when I started Lucy, Blackmores had five it was in five markets in Asia. So we were in Thailand, Malaysia, uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And we had sales of around 25 million Aussie. We had an EBIT of about 300,000 Aussie. And then over that next 10 year period until when I left in early 2020, we were in 15 markets. We had another 10 markets, including China. And we grew the business to about 200 million in sales. So basically 10 times the sales. And we, we, we grew the profit to close to 40 million Aussie in EBIT. Obviously, the profit growth was massive. And we grew it from around 2% of Blackmore's business to 50% of the company. It's probably one of the, in the last decade, probably one of the Australian success stories in retail, for a retail brand expanding in the region. And did China play a key role in the growth or was it the growth of the Asia region what I'd say, Lucy, we had a quite an interesting strategy or what Christine Holgate, who was obviously the CEO of Blackmore, how we approached it was our first approach was to actually get the current five markets we were in, get them really, really working as best they could. And a couple of those markets, particularly Thailand and Malaysia, where, where Blackmores had been for a long time, were highly profitable. We were using the profit coming out of those markets to fuel the expansion in the rest of Asia. And then we, we got a bit lucky with, we went into Korea on TV shopping and did extremely well in Korea with a big one of the big TV shopping companies, CJO. By then, we sort of, I guess, had a, had the track record to then have a go at China because China, as you know, is very complex. And we spent about myself went out and the deputy managing director for Blackmores, who's a guy called Raymond Chan out of Hong Kong, who is ex Proctor and Unilever. We spent out two years researching China. So we spent, we were going back and forth, back and forth, meeting lots of people. Then we entered China, and and then that grew significantly. The business now is at a point where within Asia itself, about half the revenue is China and half the revenue is the rest of Asia. And Indonesia also plays a big part in that because we did a big joint venture in Indonesia during my time. I guess what I'd say is that success breeds success. And obviously all those markets in Asia are so linked now, Lucy and Australia are so linked that particularly in the category Blackmores is in, consumers are travelling all over that region and the bigger your brand shows up around the whole region, then the, the, the bigger your potential. One of the things we often talk about with Asia and also with China, we like to lump it into one, the Asia region, the APAC region or China. But Asia has lots of countries, varying different cultures, languages. But what were some of the differences and similarities that you noticed, especially with Blackmore, since you did cut through a lot of the different countries across the region? I think the first thing, it's a really good point you make, Lucy, and people tend to lump Asia together. And even within China, as you as you know better than me, I mean, even within China itself, you know, North, Central, South and West are all vastly different places to do business, actually. I think the first thing is you really need to have an appreciation of where you're doing business. You need to be very culturally sensitive and understand what you're trying to do there. One of the other reasons which I grant for Blackmore's great success is Blackmore's has no expats in the whole of Asia. A thousand staff, everyone is local. Even when I was working there, there were only two foreigners, two Caucasian and Aussies working in the region, myself and another guy working in Singapore. 
and we were both employers, locals, and everyone else was local. So every country manager is from the market. That's really, really critical. And I, I think that's the reason for Blackmore's success because you, you have to have people who know the idiosyncrasies of those markets and understand the cultural and business nuance, which as a foreigner, you can never really understand. Obviously, it's like any business, anything in business, Lucy, there's similarities across anywhere you do business with how you engage with people, how you build relationships, how you respect local culture, how you change your product mix, your marketing, etc., to meet local demand. Something that's really critical is listening to your local team. And many foreign companies don't do that. They always think headquarters knows best. In many situations that I've seen, and as you know, my, my last couple of years where I've been doing a lot of consulting and advisory work and board roles, is often headquarters doesn't know best. The guys in the market actually know the best. You just got to be willing to listen to them and trust and empower them to tell you what they really think. Great ideas out of headquarters might sound good at headquarters. They often don't sound, sound so good at a local market level. The localization point is really interesting. I agree with that. But to challenge that point as well, how do you ensure ultimately it's still an Australian business? There's a lot of Australian values and priorities. How do you ensure that there is adequate communication and those values are still aligned at the local level whilst ensuring that the right localization occurs? First thing I'd say is, you have to put a lot of effort into that, whether it's brand guidelines, brand books, corporate, the vision, the strategy, all of that's got to be very well communicated. My view is a lot of it's people-to-people -people contact, but I think a really big point is you need to get people out of headquarters or regional offices into the markets, visiting, short-term placements too, but then you need to get the people out of the markets into headquarters. And you've got to put a lot of work into that cultural cascading, if you put it that way, from the board right through to the, to the junior staff, whether it's product advisors out in Jog Jakarta, it just takes a lot of time and effort and a lot of training and it takes money. I mean, you need to invest in it to do it. The other, other part of it all too is you need to have a really strong governance and risk management framework too when you've got a lot of people spread across geographically remote locations. In case of Blackmore, you're a publicly listed company. You, you need to manage that well. But it's it just takes effort. It's a really pet, pet sort of point of mine that I really like to drive home is that the concept that you can set up a business in Asia or have even export to the region and you have your international business guy, guy or girl, lady or whatever, go there once every six months, it just doesn't work. You need to have people in the region, like my view, every four to six weeks, they need to be there. You need to be going up and down, up and down, up and down. And at a senior level, you need to build high-level relationships because those high-level relationships, you only really need them when you've got a crisis. And this is one of the great things about working with Christine Holgate and Marcus Blackmore, was that if we ever needed them in the region, they would just jump on a plane and come. If I had something that I really needed to do and I needed to, I got a meeting, say, with the, which we actually did, with Jack Maher and, and Ali Barber to talk about what we were doing on cross-border e-commerce with him and with the team, Christine Holgate would just get on the plane, we'd fly to Jack and go to Hangzhou and meet Jack Maher. Or alternatively, if we had a crisis in some market with one of our partners or something had gone wrong, you know, the board or Christina Marcus or other senior execs would just jump on a plane and come. That's a lot of commitment from that. And you need that to succeed in the region. There's a lot of groundwork and we often forget with COVID and being able to use technologies like Zoom or Teams, ultimately it's still quite important to have that face-to-face -face and that in-person 
connection and to lay that groundwork so when things do happen for better or for worse, those relationships are really strong. And it's an interesting point because people sort of often talk about sort of Asia and Chinese culture in particular and guanxi and relationships, but actually no matter where you do business, whether it's Australia, the US, Middle East, Europe, Asia, relationships are key. And what makes you success is that you have that, you have a connection or connections that you can talk to, whether it's to pursue an opportunity or deal with a challenge. Never underestimate the value of that. And obviously in a 10 year period in Blackmore's, with a thousand staff in 15 countries, you've got challenges everywhere that you need to be able to address. And most of those get addressed by some form of personal you know, personal connection that you can then go and meet and sit down and talk to people and try to resolve an issue, whether it's a, a trade dispute or a customs matter or a personnel issue. You've held leadership positions across various Asian countries and in the region. If reflecting back, what are some of those key leadership traits or insights that you've gained that's been very useful in doing business and building those relationships? Firstly, with your team, you've got to sort of genuinely care about your team. Everyone says, everyone says we care about our team, but I think you really have to you really have to put a lot of a lot of effort on working and genuinely caring about your team and looking after them and you know, whether that's shielding them from stuff from headquarters that's totally irrelevant to their day job or whether it's making sure that they're, they're well looked after, that they're respected, that their terms and conditions are, are good, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's really, really important. When you're running a remotely, you know, a remotely diverse group of people, I think that care down to a sort of really individual level is very important. And as a leader, and as a leader, you that, that's something that's, I think sometimes lacking in some companies. And again, I, I learned a lot of that from in my career from, from Marcus and Christine, who are both pretty exceptional leaders, as as we know. The other thing is, is as I say, trusting your, having local staff in these markets and you trust them and you empower them to do the job. And also connection and communication and trust mm-hmm. is built to a level where if something's happening, that they put their hand up and tell you rather than, you know, what they say, waving as they're drowning, you know, until you know, you know, early. And the other thing I really think, Lucy, and which is a, a good point for the, for your podcast, I think, which is one of the reasons I know you do it, is that also you've just got to be genuinely passionate about the region and passionate about the markets you're working in and really passionate about what you're doing. Like living here, like working here, and if you're not living here, like being there, enjoy the craziness of it. Of it. Because it's like any mar- any of these markets. I mean, they're, it's a fair bit of the time. It's total chaos. It's madness. And and that's part of the buzz of it is you sort of feed off that craziness, you know. You're stuck out and like myself and another guy was stuck out and literally snowed in out in the back of Heilongjiang one time and you're drinking you're drinking Mao Tai with some Mongolian guys in a in a tent because the car's stuck. Like you've got to actually just enjoy that crazy stuff as well. So sorry, that's I'm rambling, but that's that's what I think is really important for, for success. And I think for Australians and young, young Australians who are looking to build a career in the region, that's all part of it too. Feed off the energy and dynamism that comes out of these markets. You just cannot help but be impressed by that dynamism. I, I would say for many younger Australians or Australians who are still forging their careers and their pathways, Asia and certain countries in Asia are exciting, but not from a, I want to build 
a career, I would like to do business perspective. I can think of Thailand and Indonesia as two very attractive destinations for partying and tourism. But to think of those destinations as places, you know, of growing middle class, of being able to work and contribute on that front, I think there's still a gap there. How can Australians think about those nations in a way that's a bit more relevant from a commercial sense? It's very true. I mean, these places are great to visit as a tourist, but sort of building a career that's focused on those markets or focused in Asia is, is very different. If you look at the next decade, if you're young in your career, there's no doubt because age is the future. Many Australians or foreigners, other foreigners, what they what people actually lack is sort of on-ground executional experience. And, and anything that can give you in-market on-ground executional experience is what matters. As I say, I've been advising companies now for the last couple of years since I finished with Blackmores. And what the reason most people pay me for advice is that there aren't a lot of people who have actually executed on the ground across a whole range of markets. And so people are really interested in my views on, and what, I often, what I'm often doing is actually just saying to people, no, this will not work, or this won't, this will work, or this won't work, or whatever. And I'm sort of reviewing strategy, people's strategies, or I'm creating a strategy, but generally I'm often just reviewing it. And so anything that I think, whether that's you come up to, you do a short-term placement, you talk to companies, you do an internship, you, you go into a market and just live there for six months and work there. And that, I think that's what's really important to, as an employer, you actually want people who've, who've done something in a market or in a different country. And, and that shows a whole range of other traits that are good for career, whether it's tenacity and resilience and openness and flexibility to different ideas, etc. that then I think can really help boost your career, even if you end up having a career that's primarily in Australia. Tell us a little bit more about the work that you're doing now. You've stepped out of the C-suite and get to work with many different companies now. In the last couple of years, I've probably advised you know, maybe 30 or 50 different companies, or usually always either in the health, in the healthcare, food, or, or some, in the sort of skincare space. And usually it's around Asian market entry or China market entry in particular. And then I sit on the num- a number of boards, both public and private, all of which have an, have an Asian part of their business that they, they're either in or they want to grow. It's really interesting work, one, because it's diversified because you're dealing with lots of different companies, but also because you're you, you fundamentally looking at a lot of issues and things which you've seen before. Are they in the health and wellness sector? A lot of them are health and wellness, and then some in the food and some in skincare. And they're Australian companies? Mostly Australian, some from the US and some one or two, one Japanese company and a Korean company. You said earlier having that on the ground executionary experience means that you know what works, what doesn't work, what works well, what works very well. Across the companies that you've worked at at the moment, what's the biggest assumption that they make? Mm. Well, there's a really interesting quote that I think is a good one, which actually comes from Clinton Dines, who you might know used to run BHP in China, which was when you're looking at any market in Asia is to halve your expectations and double your time and budget. And in China now, it's probably triple your time and budget. Honestly, I think probably the biggest challenges or the things that you see is people's expectations of how much money they're going to make there and how long it's going to take them to do it. It's just generally unrealistic. And then... The really big piece is the investment required, not only for money, but the time and, and people's time to actually to actually make it successful. 
And the companies that I've worked with over the last few years, the ones that have been highly successful are the ones that understand that it's going to take quite some time to break even, for example, have a business plan that sets it out. Business plan is also pretty flexible, but also just willing to keep investing to get there. And then the final point probably is also just to have a milestones or break points where if it's not working, you just pull out because it's not going to work for one reason or another. The market moves or the products is not what people want anymore. You pull the plug and just move on because I think that's the other thing you really see is it's, you know, you can just go in and just drag on just burning cash and it's never going to be successful. You're never going to make money, but everyone's committed to it. So no one wants to say we just we didn't get it right. That was one of my other learnings from the Blackmore's experience, actually, Lucy, was we went into a couple of markets where we were just too early. So we went into, say, for example, Cambodia and Mongolia. We were, we were just we were too early for the market. And one of the things I really learned then was we, it was pretty obvious after maybe six or nine months we were way too early, but we just left it a bit too long to pull out. We, you know, we pulled out after like a year and a half or something, but we probably should have just pulled out at six months because it just we were... We were too sophisticated and the price point was wrong for the market. So that's a big point too. Great advice. In terms of time as a ballpark, how long should companies be thinking? If you enter a market and you don't have a profitable business or you're not breaking even at least within, say, two years, 18 months to two years, you probably really got to question why you're there. I think the minimum you should be looking at is like a five-year time horizon where you look, you're probably not going to break even for 18 months to two years. When I look at China, this is going to sound pretty outrageous, but my view is unless you're willing to sort of pretty much invest a million dollars in the first 12 months, even for doing cross-border e-commerce, it's hard to succeed there longer term. I mean, you might be able to launch, on, like, for example, launch a, launch a flagship store on Timor and get some sales going, but it's highly unlikely you're going to build a sustainable business there over the longer term unless you're willing to invest a lot of money in that first 12 to 18 months. And the companies that do that are the ones that are still there in three and five years and have built a a sustainable, long-term, profitable business. If you're looking at a market like China or Indonesia or India, like these big, complex markets, you need to have a lot of investment behind you to do it. If you don't have that level of investment, don't go to those big markets. Go to an easier market that's more open, Singapore or Hong Kong or whatever, where there's lower barriers to entry. They're highly competitive, but probably more likely to be successful as a smaller business than going into taking on a big elephant like China. So if I was an Australian SME, don't have a million dollars, but feeling a bit of FOMO, wanting to get into Asia somewhere, where are some good entry points for me to be thinking about? Singapore is a really always a good market to sort of test where you can go. The regulatory environment is very open. It's highly competitive. It's got a very international community living there so very open to all different types of products it's expensive to enter that market but you can enter it as a smaller brand and hong kong's also quite good for that as well these bigger markets the regulations are also much more complex to enter and if you just even if you're doing cross-border it's just takes more time and effort and i think the other thing to say lucy and you know this again very well is that the days when a market like china and even in indonesia was seen as you know there wasn't that much competition whatever you that has gone. I mean, China's the most competitive market in the world now. I mean, there's on cross-border e-commerce, when Blackmore's went in, obviously when cross-border opened, there was, I don't know, maybe 10 or 10 foreign brands that were doing okay. Like now there's like 100, maybe 200. So the competitive, and then the cost to acquire customers, consumers, has gone up and up and up. You need to know that these markets are highly competitive and 
unless you've got a product that's completely unique and there's just a niche in the market where you can just go into and you don't have any competition, but that's pretty rare. There's a bunch of stuff that you do, Peter, outside of the boardroom and outside of your advisory work. You're an avid surfer. I am. You do a lot of volunteering also in the region. In Nepal, I do a lot of work in, as I say, very remote areas, poverty alleviation, and particularly around child trafficking and stuff like that too, which is pretty intense. I support an organisation called SurfAid, which is related to surfing, but it's a great organisation that does work in remote communities where surfers go, so particularly in, in Indonesia and Solomons and places in the Pacific. And again, it's focused around, around very remote communities, around healthcare, clean water, you know, micro enterprises, micro businesses in small communities. And then my other great passion is Bhutan. My wife and I are supporters of a, a foundation in Bhutan that, that supports a number of monasteries, nunneries and primary schools in Bhutan. And, uh, and we're in the process of bu- building a, a monastic university there as well, which is one of the biggest private building projects in Bhutan at the moment. And a big part of my success, I credit to kindness and compassion. I'm a Buddhist, I'm Buddhist also. To, to sort of help other people and use your, both your financial resources, but also your time and your network and contacts and stuff to help people who, who don't have, don't have what the same as what you've managed to have or what I've managed to have in my career. It's very deep purpose for me. And then, as you say, to finish up, surfing is my great passion. And I try to surf a couple of times a week because that'll keep you, keeps you very, keeps you very grounded when you go out in the surf and get totally pounded at my age. Lucy, that, that keeps you very grounded. <laughs> That's great. Any final words of advice for our listeners who are thinking, you know, as Australians interested in Asia, wanting to build an impactful contribution, whether it's in volunteering, the foundations, or it's in business. I believe that Australia is a very uniquely positioned nation and Australians are very unique in terms of what we can give back. Get out there. Like just, I, I think it's really important just to get in, the, get, out, get in the region, just get out there, look around, spend some time here, see what may or may not interest you. And then I think, as I say, try to do things that you're that you're passionate about and then finally use that wherever you can to help help someone else get out there and have a look and g- give it a go and final thing i point so lucy is never underestimate where your career path might take you from where you start like i started off the environmental science at uni i was going to be the national park ranger at noosa because that was the job i wanted and i could surf all day and look where i ended up don't underestimate where your career path may might take you and we're experiencing coming to the markets and looking around and meeting people might get you. It's been wonderful to chat to you today. Happy New Year again. Thank you so much, Peter. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Lucy. This was the last episode of Clout Asia. You can still listen to all of our previous episodes on Substack or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning into Clout Asia for the past two years. Cloud Asia will return. In the meantime, please drop me a note and tell me what you thought of the episodes. You can find me at hello at clout.asia. See you soon.